Let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. I do not want to travel around the Bible today with here a little and there a little. You know Daniel 4. Hopefully you read it last evening. We'll just go through it and make some observations from it and encourage ourselves about the great God that we have and why we should not be afraid or worry about the small, little, insignificant political events taking place in our world. It was easy after World War II, after Korea, Vietnam, especially in the 1960s, to fear about national politics, international events. And from that fear rose the John Birch Society, Carl McIntyre, Jerry Falwell, and other political prophets that led God's people astray by putting a lot of their emphasis, worry, concern, efforts on national and political events instead of spiritual goals, none of which was ever taught in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul never spent a word about political events, and there were many of them, and they were large and significant, with a foreign oppressing power already ruling in Israel. He didn't worry about any of that except to pray for them, to obey them, to pay their taxes, and to give tribute to them. And to thank God for them and to understand that every office, every person, everything they did was according to his perfect will. He was thankful to God and we've written pages of the different benefits that Paul had because of the Roman Empire and and of Caesar himself and how he was saved in trial. He was saved when he was strapped to whipping posts to be scourged by just referring to his Roman citizenship. And that's that's how the Bible leaves us to be content under our government, to be thankful for our government, to pray for our leaders, to obey them, pay them, and to live victoriously, comfortably, richly enjoying all things God's given us, and trust Him to take care of us. That is what a Christian should should do. I don't care how many, I don't care how loud they are in any other course of action, that's what we ought to do. I shared with you an email yesterday. And it's that kind of angst, it's that kind of fear, worry, and concern that troubles me. We ought not to have any of it. When I was single digits, I had some of it. But thanks be to God, over the last 40 years, he's 50 years, he has saved me from that. And I don't want you to have any of it. Let's be victorious. Let's dance on our high places. Let's enjoy America. Let's enjoy all that he's given us. Let's pray for peace. Let's confess her sins on her behalf. Let's supplicate and intercede for our rulers. Let's give thanks for them. And let's believe that God is in charge of every one of these little tiny events that are thrown in your face and magnified by the magnifying glass and microscope of the Internet. In the past, you wouldn't even have heard about these events. Any of them. They're too small. There have been large events. I was asked, why don't you preach about Iran? Why? Why don't I preach about Ceylon or Madagascar? Why would we preach about Iran or Iraq? It seems that everyone has forgotten history, and it's only one of ten points to keep your minds stable. But do you understand that Islam almost conquered Europe several hundred years ago? Do you know that after King James authorized the King James Bible... Islam almost took Europe? Do you know that the century before, they almost took Europe? Do you know that the century before, they almost took Europe? Do you know anything about the siege of Vienna? Do you know anything about the Danube River? Do you know anything about the Iberian Peninsula? Do you know anything about Spain? Do you know anything about who was ruling over those European nations? And how they encroached on Germany and France and England? A long time ago. And we aren't talking about some little truck bomber or truck driver and suicide bomber. We're talking about the overthrow of Europe. Lord, help us keep a perspective. Never before have such little events been so sensationalized and splashed in our faces to get our interest, to get our excitement, so that they can sell ad space, to get us reading their blogs, Never before have people, individual testimonies, been filmed and then shoved in your face from an event with blood streaming down. So what? 
I do feel, you know, listen, there is a, there is a little bit of grief in me for each person individually considered, and I trust that to the Holy God, but those individual statistics are irrelevant in the big picture, but they are shoved at us. How many people are murdered intentionally each day in America? 44. No mention of them. How many people are intentionally murdered? When I say intentionally murdered, this does not include suicide, manslaughter, or accidents. How many are intentionally murdered every day in the world? 1,243 every day. So, even a Christian can ask these lone wolf attacks. ISIS, Zika, Ebola, Y2K. Is the world coming to an end? No, it's just getting better in many respects. Do you know what the Dow was when Detroit burned? Do you know what's happened? Do you know what's happened since then? Incredible. Incredible. Do you know there was a draft back then? Do you know that there's older men in this church that were, that were had to register for the draft? Do you know that our boys don't register? I mean, we're not drafted. I mean, there's a lot of things that have changed for the betterment of this country. Yes, we see a moral decline, a moral implosion, and the nation is getting what it deserves in that way. But let us keep a a historical perspective and let's look at a, a real big event. And that is a king that just stomped on any nation he chose to stomp on. And one of those nations that God had him stomp on was the nation of Israel, his own church. But within that nation, those who feared God, where did they end up? On their, on wherever they wanted. Jer, uh, Jeremiah was told by Nebuchadnezzar, where do you want to live? Unbelief. That is the truth of that war. Where was Daniel? On a throne next to Nebuchadnezzar. Did he survive his dynasty, his life? Yes. Did he survive his dynasty? Yes. He was with Cyrus. He was with Darius. Where was Ezekiel? By the river Kibar. In, in captive lands. Brethren, the Lord can take care of us no matter what happens to America. But the things that are happening to America in the last 50 years, many of them have been very good. We can live very peaceable lives and, and worship the God, our Father. Lord, help us, please. It is easy in a declining nation with much internet fear-mongering to fear or worry about politics. But let's not do that. Let's not be led astray. Let's continue to give God the glory that He is just playing chess with this nation's, with this world's nations. And that is what He's doing. Babylon was the church's great enemy. Babylon is looked at in both testaments. In the New Testament, it's Rome being looked at as mystical Babylon. But that word Babylon was the greatest enemy of the church of God. And Daniel chapter 4 is to tell us what God does with the greatest enemy of the church of God. He plays with them like toys. He rips out their hearts and sticks in an animal's heart. To the highest monarch on earth. The glorious king that he knew about. And we want to read about it in Daniel chapter 4. Thank you, Chris, for telling us that Nebuchadnezzar was such a Bible lover that he sent Daniel 4 to the whole world. We want to trust God. That slide presentation that I prepared for you four years ago on living under President Obama, very useful Bible information in the first half, Very useful historical information in the second half. It will change your life if you will simply believe the Bible, accept history, and get up and go to work and buy yourself a new toy. And worship God while you're working. Worship God while you're playing. And trust the Lord. The Lord said, this is not my idea. This is not my philosophy. This is God's. And all those verses were presented to you in that PowerPoint slide presentation. Jeremiah told the people captive in Babylon that they ought to marry, that they ought to plant vineyards, that they ought to have children, that they ought to enjoy life, that God would take care of them. 500 miles from home, their houses leveled to the ground, their city leveled, 
And in a foreign nation that worshipped a different God and spoke a different language, God could bless them there, and He did. And when the time came, to the very day, to the very minute, that nation was overthrown in one night without a conflict. One night, Babylon fell. And Cyrus the Persian took the kingdom with Darius the Mede, his uncle. And immediately, he told all the Jews... Any one of you that wants to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild that city and rebuild that temple to the God, that God, the God of heaven, has told me for you to go back and to build and I'll pay for it. So it's beautiful. The history of the Bible and the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Cyrus was named in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45 about 150 years before he was born. And God called him my servant. God called him the shepherd of his church. Because Cyrus was like a pastor taking care of the church of Israel. This chapter is divided very easily into an introduction in verses 1 through 3, a conclusion in verses 34 through 37, and then there's a warning given in verses 4 through 27 and fulfillment in 28 through 33 if you wanted some sort of a division. Let me get one thing out of the way. We cannot prove eternal life for Nebuchadnezzar here. And I don't try, and I don't care, and you shouldn't care because it doesn't matter. It doesn't alter the message one bit. We cannot prove eternal life for him. It doesn't matter. Balaam, Balaam made comparable statements about God and even the Lord Jesus Christ, which Nebuchadnezzar did not. Babylon had no known revival or reformation because we continue right on in the same worship of false gods under Belshazzar because chapter 5 tells us that. Nebuchadnezzar was known to have made similar statements before about God without any real change in his life. He made similar statements in chapter 2. He made similar statements in chapter 3. He ordered that any nation on earth or anybody on earth that ever said anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego should be chopped in pieces and their houses turned into a dunghill. But there was no reformation in his life or the empire. So we just leave it there. God gave him enough understanding and humbled him enough that this great monarch, whether whether born again or not, declared things with his mouth comparable to, hold on, comparable to what devils say when they meet Jesus Christ. Do you know that when devils meet Jesus Christ, they say things like Nebuchadnezzar? Mm -hmm. Because they know them to be true, but it doesn't change their life, and their lives aren't changed to say them. They know the facts. And the facts were exposed to Nebuchadnezzar, and so he said them. I'm not going to regale you with ancient history of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar or modern political history or current events, though I could do both, and turn this into a series which is unnecessary. My call, duty, and privilege is to preach the word, and I believe every word of it right here, exactly as it's given. There have been a million or so cuneiform tablets found in the Middle East, many of them belonging to Babylon, and there are things known from those cuneiform tablets about Babylon, about Nebuchadnezzar, about the Hanging Gardens, and about other things. Now only 50,000 of those million cuneiform tablets have been deciphered because there's only a few decipherers alive in the world. And they estimate that there's probably another 100 million cuneiform tablets to be discovered because they've only dug in certain places. But I don't care. I've got something a whole lot better than a cuneiform tablet. I've got this right here. The Word of God. And Daniel was written contemporaneously with the Babylonian and the Persian empires after Babylon, and it's never been overthrown or proven wrong. I believe it totally with all the rest of Scripture. If we're going to believe Genesis 1-1, we believe Daniel 4, and we believe the last chapter of Revelation. Who was Nebuchadnezzar? The first word of Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar the king. He was a Chaldean. Chaldea was a little part of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is the cradle of the civilization. It's where humanity began. It's where men began to live. It's where the Garden of Eden was, between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. You can read about it in the first three chapters of Genesis. Chaldea was a little area there. Assyria was the great empire at the time when Nebuchadnezzar was born. His father, Nabopolassar, arranged an alliance with other small kingdoms around there, along with Chaldea, and they overthrew Nineveh. And that is, that is described in the book of Nahum. You have a three-book Bible, three 
chapter book in your Bible about the overthrow of Nineveh, and it's the little minor prophet of Nahum. Nabopolassar came back and then went against Egypt and Assyria. That's what was left of Assyria after having their capital overthrown, joined together with Egypt. And Nabopolassar sent Nebuchadnezzar, his oldest son, as the general of the armies, and he defeated that combined host. That battle is described in the Bible. It's the battle and war at Carchemish, and it's described in secular history. At the end of that battle, Nabopolassar died. Nebuchadnezzar came back to become king of Babylon. He had conquered everything. The Bible tells us this in Second Kings. Everything from the river of Egypt, which is the Nile, to the Euphrates. That's a large territory. It was now under the control of Nebuchadnezzar. And he used all his slave labor that he pulled from those nations that he had defeated to build the magnificent city of Babylon. Herodotus, who wrote a hundred years after Nebuchadnezzar, the Greek historian, described it in such terms, I'm embarrassed to even say them to you. Other historians since have tried to discount him as being a little fanciful in describing that city, but the double walls around it, the size of those walls, the length of those walls, the hanging gardens, the river Euphrates running through the city, it had an endless supply of water, an endless supply of food. There were double walls that could handle four chariots abreast on either one with with a barren space in between to take, they could withstand a siege forever. The words in the Bible are, Babylon sits as a queen and thinks she shall sit forever and reign as a queen. She was overthrown in one night. We want to remember all these things to comfort us when we think about the greatest enemy ever described in the Bible for the, against the church in a natural, national way was Babylon. Who was Nebuchadnezzar? I just told you all that we need to know about him. The Bible has Chaldea seven times, Chaldea in 66, Nebuchadnezzar 88 times, and Babylon 260 in its pages, telling us about this important national enemy and ruler that was an enemy of Israel. What kind of a king was he? Well, at Carchemish, he defeated Egypt and Assyria, who were the two greatest nations in that part of the world at that time. He was a monarch that ruled with despotic, absolute, and total power over all his citizens. If he decided on a new religion, he could raise himself an image up in a plane and have everyone worship it at the sound of the music. And if you didn't want to worship it, you could be thrown into a fiery furnace and burned up. Now that's despotic, absolute power. We've never seen anything like it. When you think that something's happening because our president uses some executive liberty that he's got to sign into force something. You, you've never seen anything like what we can read about in the pages of Scripture. Right. And God overthrew this monarch and played with him like a toy. And you should remember that and apply it to all other heads of state everywhere. They're all in his control, equal to Nebuchadnezzar, though they are all far inferior to him. Right. Amen. Our present president's father was not King Nabopolassar. I think I'll just leave it there. I'd like to go further, but I won't. His mother was not a queen. Trust the Lord. Trust the Bible history that we have that God rules over men and in the affairs of men and the kingdoms of men. God considers his kingdom the greatest. Look back at just chapter 2. We're looking at Nebuchadnezzar and what kind of a king he was because the first words of Daniel 4 are Nebuchadnezzar the king. We will pick up the pace. Daniel chapter 2, verse 37. This is Daniel explaining the first dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. God said that. That's how great Nebuchadnezzar was. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Everyone wants to talk about Alexander the Great, but Alexander the Great was weighed down this image. Because Cyrus, the, the, the Persians and the Medes came next. 
and then the Greeks, then the Romans. But as for a single monarch, the head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar, as we're told right there. If you want to see the passage that I referred to a moment ago, 2 Kings chapter 24 and verse 7, to see the extent of his empire by this particular verse, 2 Kings 24, 7, And the king of Egypt came not again any more out of his land. The king of Egypt did not leave Egypt again during this period of time, for the king of Babylon had taken from the river of Egypt unto the river Euphrates all that pertained to the king of Egypt. And who was that king of Babylon that did all that? Nebuchadnezzar. Look at Jeremiah 27. We're just looking at a few Bibles. There's many Bible references. Jeremiah refers to Nebuchadnezzar over and over because Jeremiah was prophesying about the ruin of Jerusalem and who would do it. Jeremiah 27, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, came this word unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus saith the Lord to me, Make thee bonds and yokes and put them upon thy neck, and send them to the king of Edom, and to the king of Moab, and to the king of the Ammonites, and to the king of Tyrus, and to the king of Zidon, by the hand of the messengers which come to Jerusalem unto Zedekiah, king of Judah. All these nations wanted to get together and oppose Nebuchadnezzar. God said, Jeremiah, send some yokes. Send some bonds to these nations and command them to say unto their masters, tell these ambassadors to tell their kings, thus saith the Lord of hosts. What host? What host? The armies of heaven. The God of Israel, thus shall ye say unto your masters, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are upon the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and have given it unto whom it seemed meet unto me. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. And all nations shall serve him, and his son, and his son's son, until the very time of his land come, and then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. And it shall come to pass that the nation and kingdom which will not serve the same Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and that will not put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation will I punish, saith the Lord, with the sword, and with the famine, and with the pestilence, until I have consumed them by his hand. Now that is a declaration about international affairs in the only part of the world that mattered to God. The reason that other parts of the world are never mentioned because it doesn't matter to him, because he's only mentioning the nations that were around his church, the nation of Israel, and had an impact upon it. So we don't hear about the Cherokee nation. Please don't even use those words in the same combined phrase oh we are talking about a real nation when we talk about Babylon and we're talking about a real king when we refer to Nebuchadnezzar these are some of the statements that the Lord's made and there's many more if you were to read when you read the book of Jeremiah you're going to encounter much about Nebuchadnezzar he destroyed Tyre He besieged it for 13 years until they humbled themselves and agreed to pay tribute to him. One of the richest cities on earth. He destroyed Egypt and kept Egypt's king in his own land. And he destroyed Jerusalem. He took the walled city of Jerusalem. He razed it to the ground. But he preserved Jeremiah in it. And he preserved Daniel in it and others. And they were taken captive and they prospered the land of Babylon. And they returned 70 years later to rebuild that city. There is no worry to fear your government, for it is far inferior to the rule of this king. There is no despotic, absolute, discretionary, arbitrary power in Washington that can make a change in the next one hour like Nebuchadnezzar could make in one second. And when he made it in one second, it was law. And it was put into force immediately. And it involved life and death, and he didn't have to ask anyone, and no one interviewed him about it. It's just totally different. There's no worry or fear about government. There's no worry to fear their legislation. For Nebuchadnezzar's laws were far worse. 
That's what kind of a king he was. So it opens, Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. Now that's not what he was known for, peace. But he's writing here from a different perspective than his, his usual proclamations or declarations of state. He had crushed these nations into submission that he was sending this proclamation to. But it went to all people. What is Daniel for? It is not a history written by Daniel of what happened to the king Nebuchadnezzar. I've taught this many times, but we have a changing church. And the newer members and the younger members, I want you to understand that Daniel chapter 4 was not written by Daniel. It was written by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar wrote it in the first person. He uses the word I 14 times in the first person, me, my, or mine, 25 times for 39 personal references to himself in this one chapter. He wrote it as a proclamation to all these people under his authority and rule, all languages, it was translated many times so that they would know what God had done to him because God had thoroughly humbled him so he did not care about preserving the information of that terrible seven-year ordeal to himself or to his family, but he published it to the whole world. Because when God humbles a man, there is no limit to that humility. And God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. So when we look at Daniel chapter 4, the king wrote it in Aramaic or Chaldean as an official proclamation to his empire. Then it was translated into all languages and nations that dwell in all the earth. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have to be inspired to make it scripture. Only Daniel has to be inspired to put it into scripture. So it makes it inspired scripture by Daniel, including it in Daniel's prophecy. It is for sure one of the great detailed descriptions of God's sovereign rule over rulers. And you should love Daniel 4. If a person doesn't get excited, and if a person doesn't get humbled by this account to worship God, he lacks faith and has a spiritual problem. Because this chapter is just too thrilling. This morning I've listened attentively to the prayers that have been offered, and I've heard Daniel 4.35 come out several times, and we will get to Daniel 4.35, the Lord helping us helping us a lot because what a statement it is I still remember I still remember goosebumps I still remember awe I still remember submission humility and change to realize that the God of Daniel 4 was presented in a way that we seldom hear about God and we want to hear about God the way the Bible presents him and once You begin looking, and once you begin thinking as you read, you see that it's through all the pages of Scripture. Daniel chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's autobiographical synopsis of his reign, his ruin, and his restoration. It was written to all known people, nations, and languages under his empire. Why did he write it? Verses 2 and 3. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. I thought it good. A good king, a wise king, when he learns a good lesson that will be the profit and pleasure of his people, wants to share it with them, and so it was true of Nebuchadnezzar. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders the high God hath wrought toward me. Of course, it was good for God as well. And of course, it was good for the church of God. And of course, it was good for you and me. Yes. 2,500 years later, we are enjoying Daniel chapter 4 because God led Nebuchadnezzar to think that it was good to share this in the way he shared it to the whole world. And so we're reading a proclamation from the archives of the Chaldean Babylonian Empire preserved by God through Daniel in the prophecy of Daniel. How great are his signs! This is Nebuchadnezzar. Look at that exclamation point. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders! He has mentioned signs and wonders in verse 2 and now he just says how great they are And how mighty they are, what they did to him. He's about to explain what they were. And then he says, and it's with these words he opens, and it's with these words he closes, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation. Our God is a king, and he reigns forever. He has an everlasting kingdom. All earthly kingdoms are of short duration. The Greeks only lasted a few decades. 
It is so short. Babylon only lasted a few years, but our God lasts forever. And His dominion is from one generation to the next. When generations change in other kingdoms, those kings are replaced, but not the God of heaven. Why did he write it? He thought it was good. A wise king wants to share good things. He testified of God's wonders as we should. When good things have happened to you, do you boast of them to others? The Bible says in Psalm 34 that we should make our boast in the Lord. Jesus told the Gadarene to go home and to tell his family and friends what great things the Lord had done for him. We should do that. God is known by his judgments. Psalm 9 tells us that. We're not going to look at these verses. You should know them. The Lord is known by His judgments which He executeth. Higion Selah. Very important distinction about our God. When He pours out judgment upon a man or upon a nation, we can learn things about Him. And so Nebuchadnezzar is sharing that. Why did Daniel include it? For the benefit of God's people. The things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. That we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. That's true right now. We should have patience and comfort for hope. We should be comforted. God's in charge. Not Islam, not ISIS, not Washington, not the UN, not the communists, not anyone. God's in charge. So we can cheerfully endure any negative events taking place around us politically or nationally or internationally. And we can be comforted and we can have hope. Our God's in charge. And that's what Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 tells us about why things are contained in Scripture. You worry about political affairs in our nation or world, but your worry is total vanity. Worry has never accomplished a single thing except to hurt you. It's a terrible thing. Just think about it. Your worry has never accomplished a single thing except to hurt you and those around you. What was the setting? Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. God had prospered him and had given him peace and very easy victories over these other nations so that he could be back in the great building project of the great city of Babylon, the wonder of the world. You can go online and read all you want to about Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar and the building of that city and its magnitude and its size and its glory and riches. Incredible. You can read about how many gates there were coming up out of the Euphrates. You can read about the barred gates, the leaved gates that were down in that water to keep foreign armies from getting in. But, you know, Darius the Mede had his army corps of engineers divert that water upriver into a, a desert place and dry up that riverbed in one night while Belshazzar was toasting his gods with instruments taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And that night while that was occurring, the combined armies of the Medes and the Persians marched through that riverbed after their army corps. Everybody knows this. This isn't just in the Bible. This Everybody in history knows this about how it took place. But it's written very well in Isaiah 44 final verses and Isaiah 45 first verses about the event having been prophesied by Isaiah before Cyrus was born. And the city was taken. And you can read about it. Verse 5, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. That's wonderful to read. A great king like Nebuchadnezzar wasn't afraid of very much. He had absolute despotic power and had never met a foe that he couldn't overthrow and destroy very quickly. You do not know anything about any ruler and how God might deal with any of them. What made King James I of England, the sixth of Scotland, to want to authorize a Bible when there were so many Bibles circulating in England? We never know what's going on in the heart of a king. It's the Lord's providence. And he likes to direct it like the rivers of water, whithersoever he will. Though confused by the dream, it still frightened him. When you read a verse like this, don't think that God speaks to you by dreams. For he has not proposed or defined such a method of revelation today. That's long past. Why in the world do we need dreams when he's put it in writing? Amen. 
Your dreams are so confusing. When you wake up, you're not sure what you actually dreamed. And when we hear you tell us about your dream, we don't believe you really had one. We have it in writing. We don't have dreams. There were dreams back then because the revelation of God was incomplete. His counselors, verses 6 and 7. Now notice in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, one of those first person uses of the pronoun referring to himself, I, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 5, I saw, verse 6, therefore made I. He is telling the world what happened to him. Verses 6 and 7, Therefore made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians. What a a wonderful nation to be trusting magicians. The astrologers. Oh yes, let's get the horoscope out. Do you know what they really liked? Their favorite method of wisdom was to pull the liver of a goat. To pull a liver of a sheep. And it's mentioned in the Bible about their divination over a liver. Can you imagine? Most of you don't like to eat liver, so have you ever seen it? Has half the congregation under the age of 30 even seen liver? They would divine or try to forecast the future or get answers from their gods through the liver. Astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers, fortune tellers prognosticators, all involved in these words. And I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. Now what does Nebuchadnezzar call this mixed multitude of soothsayers and astrologers and magicians? The, thank you, the wise men of Babylon. I called in all the wise men of Babylon. Don't be afraid of this world. What they publish is garbage. They don't have a clue what they're talking about on any subject. Any subject. You want to talk about finances and economics? John Maynard Keynes knew that he was telling something that wasn't true and that no one could figure it out out of 10,000 men. Deficit spending, that's wisdom. When you have someone that says they're wise and has a degree from Harvard Graduate School... And they want to promote deficit spending? Are you kidding? How long can a family exist with deficit spending? On and on we could go. Don't be intimidated. When you read it on the news, because it's made it, because it's made it to the news and has passed censorship, there isn't any wisdom in it. That's why it's published. If you can read it, The wisdom's been deleted. They don't want wisdom. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They hate the truth. Learn that. Believe that. Embrace that. And just keep reading the one book of truth. If you have this book and are as poor as a church mouse, and they have all the wealth and they're publishing, you know more than they do and the Bible tells you you do. It wants to encourage you in the book of Proverbs, young men. That if you'll learn this book, especially the book of Proverbs, you'll understand practical things of wisdom that they don't. The dream. The counselors. Nebuchadnezzar is still appealing to witchcraft for help and wisdom in a major time of trouble. Like he had earlier. Just think about their ignorance. The world's ignorance when they talk about evolution, deficit spending, global warming, capital punishment, labor unions, abortion, same-sex marriage, sight method of reading, bleeding for health. For particular reasons related to the Word of God, I have read this past week about the deaths of several kings and rulers like Stalin and George Washington and the amount of blood that was extracted from that poor man in the, final, in the last couple days of his life is just pitiful. But he believed in it, and the doctors believed in it, that if you took his blood out, it would make him healthier. That wasn't very long ago. That wasn't, you know, when we're talking about a 6,000-year history, world history, we're only going back 200 years. Daniel the interpreter. Verse 8, but at the last, yes, get rid of all these other guys. Don't ever worry about being last. Who spoke last in the book of Job? And I need two names. Elihu and God spoke last. 
The first four didn't know what they were talking about. And in this case, all these men that are listed in verse 7 spoke, and then we have verse 8. I'll read verses 8 and 9. But at the last Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't have it all together, and I hope that you'll just recognize it and not worry about it. That's not what he did think. That's what he does think at this moment. And in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? And before him I told the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians. Oh, if you had that title, would you quit in the name of religion and and quit your job? Or would you just go ahead and execute it the best that you could with a bunch of magicians reporting to you? You get news that the king is going to make a big decision, so you put them all on furlough. They love you for it, they're out golfing, and the king isn't led astray by their ridiculous ideas. Anyway, you, there are some Christians who think that they cannot work in a pagan world. And the Bible tells us we can work in a pagan world. We're not supposed to go out of this world. We're in it, but we're not of it. And we can work with them, around them, over them. Daniel was over them. He was master of the magicians. Do you think he taught magic courses? I'm sorry reading some of this and some of the words and just realizing poor Daniel had to live with this for decades. O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee and no secret troubleth thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen and the interpretation thereof. Ashpenaz, the prince of the eunuchs, had given Daniel this name in verse 7 of chapter 1. It refers to Bel, Belteshazzar, which was the main deity of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar's favorite god. Daniel was inspired directly to know more. We are inspired indirectly to know more. Daniel was inspired directly to know the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We are inspired indirectly by having the Bible, including Daniel chapter 4, to tell us the answers to things that men cannot figure out and cannot solve. We know where mankind came from. We know where he's going. We know the cause of death. We know the cure of death and everything in between. We know how a marriage ought to be ordered. We know how children ought to be trained. We know what ought to happen to murderers. On and on the list goes of things we know that they don't know. They haven't figured out yet and they're less wise today than they were 200 years ago when at least they knew that a murderer ought to be put to death. Instantly. Did you read about that 34 years on death row? 34 years? The Lord have mercy upon our nation. They don't know any better. If Stephen could pray, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge, for they know not what they do. And Jesus saying the same thing, we certainly can say to this generation, Oh, brethren, young Elihu finally spoke up and he was angry. In Job chapter 32, and I wish every young man would feed on Job 32. I wish he would memorize Job 32. You are able to memorize that chapter of the Bible. And finally he spoke and he said, Great men are not always wise. Aged men do not always understand wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth him understanding. Elihu had understanding of everything that was taking place And do you know what his solution was? It's the same solution as Daniel 4. Do you remember the five words? God is greater than man. Get off your throne, Nebuchadnezzar, and worship him. Break off your sins by righteousness and see if there might be a lengthening of your tranquility. Elihu had the same message. God is greater than man. There's no one at 1600 Pennsylvania Ave that we need to worry about or anywhere else in this world. There's nothing taking place in Belgium. There's nothing taking place in South Africa or anywhere in the world, Moscow or Cuba. God's in charge of it all. Amen. The inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. We have it in writing. We have a fabulous book that tells us all about history, tells us all about practical wisdom, tells us about finances, economics, political science. Do you know what this sermon could be entitled? Political Science in the Bible. God's in charge of all politics. And when you leave that out, you have no understanding about what's going on. It looks like all confusion. It looks like a conspiracy. The only conspiracy that's being executed is God's conspiracy against them. 
The word of God can give young men today the same confidence that Daniel had to come in after all. Listen, they were Chaldeans and Nebuchadnezzar was a Chaldean. What was Daniel? A neutered Jew, a eunuch. He had to come in after all those astrologers, those magicians, those Chaldeans, those soothsayers, but he was full of confidence and he knew that Nebuchadnezzar knew that he knew. And that's a wonderful thing. And I hope that on the job, you are careful in how you conduct yourself. You are the most diligent and faithful employee. And when you are asked, the words are carefully, the words come carefully out of your mouth and you answer with the certain words of truth like Proverbs 22 teaches us to answer so that you are asked for answers. It can happen. It should happen. Psalm 198 tells us that a a young man giving attention to God's word and meditating on it can be wiser than his enemies, his teachers, and the ancients. Your birth, no matter how low, your economic class, your intelligence, your education is of little matter when it comes to wisdom and discernment because it's taught in the Word of God. Right. You just need to be spending some time in the Word of God. Never fear the wise of this world because you have a source document to trump them. Yeah. They don't. The dream, verses 10 through 18. Let me read it to you briefly. It's mentioned two or three times as, first of all, it's a dream, then it's interpreted, then it's happening. Verses 10 through 18. Nebuchadnezzar is speaking to Belteshazzar, which is Daniel. Thus were the visions of mine head in my bed. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and an holy one came down from heaven. And now we have the words of the watcher, or the words of the angel, in the next four verses. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree, and cut off his branches, shake off his leaves, and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it, and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, in the tender grass of the field. And let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation. But thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. The tree was Nebuchadnezzar. He reached up to heaven. He was the highest on earth. He extended out to all nations and men and animals, and they found shelter under his the boughs of that tree, and they found fruit and food there for their sustenance. World commerce was being transacted through Babylon at this time. He was the king of kings of the earth, of the known earth that God cared about when he writes Old Testament history. A watcher and a holy one come down. These are angels that always do the will of God. There's one being. There's one. It's not a watcher and then a holy one. A watcher is a holy one. It's a holy angel. We know that from verse 14. Because the first pronoun used in verse 14 is not they cried aloud, he cried aloud. It's a singular male pronoun for the combination of a watcher and an holy one. They're mentioned as a holy one because they're the holy angels. They're the sanctified saints of God that are around his throne. 
that are proclaiming holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and they're called watchers because they are active in all governments watching what is going on relative to authority. They do not bring a railing accusation against human rulers. It's an amazing statement in Jude 1, 8 through 10, and 2 Peter 2, 10 through 12. The angels themselves do not bring railing accusations against Satan or against rulers of this earth because they understand human authority. They understand God's ordained offices. I have taught this many times in the past, but I want all to remember it. They're always watching. They're involved in governments. They're called watchers. You know, we're told in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 that when you make a vow, you better pay it and not say to the angel that it was a mistake. That would be saying it to yourself, but the angel hears it. Do you know in 1 Corinthians 11, it tells women to have long hair and men to have short hair because of the angels? Because they're watching. Long hair in a woman is a sign of her submission to the man. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21, I'm told not to show partiality in the church of God before the elect angels because they're watching. It is serious business. Do you know who the most important persons are in Washington, D.C.? It's not the mayor. Nice try. It's the watchers and the holy ones. Right. Do you know what's really wonderful? Our friend and our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, is captain of their entire host. Amen. Right. And do you know who he loves? He died for us. Right. Do you think he's going to let something happen to you? Not a chance. You say, but there were martyrs. We've been over this before, haven't we? Have we been over this before, that there were martyrs? Mm -hmm. If you got a chariot ride to heaven ahead of time, would you call that bad or good news? If you were given so much grace during your torture and your death that you were singing and asking God to forgive those that were putting you to death, would you call that good or bad? Jesus Christ doesn't lose a single one. In any way, he will take care of every one of them. Those martyrs that we heard about in the year 2014 were wonderful. Stories to encourage us about how the Lord takes care of his own even when they're passing through death. In Daniel chapter 4 and verse 14, you can see in 13, there's a watchman and holy one that's making a judgment about Daniel. And then you can see it again in verse 17 that this matter, what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar, is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones. But don't think that they're coming up with anything of their own because verse 24 tells us, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High. It's the decree of the holy ones and of the watchers because the holy ones and the watchers or the angels that are involved in political affairs are always executing the perfect will of God. Right, right. So don't ever worry about the angels having getting some sort of conf- some level of confusion, like your GPS might get confused at times and have to redirect. The angels never have to redirect. God may redirect them, but they're always executing His decree. If you turn just a couple of pages, and I said we wouldn't turn often, but we'll turn this one time, Daniel 10 tells us about there being watchers and angels and princes in kingdoms that cannot be seen. There's a prince of the United States. There is a devil that has the ranking authority in the devil's kingdom to influence this nation for evil, and there are princes that are good angels, holy and elect angels, that also have authority in the United States, and they war against each other, And nothing is accomplished outside the will of God, but there is a spiritual conflict going on, as it did in these two empires that I'm about to show you. First of all, there were watchers in Nebuchadnezzar's empire, and they didn't like his arrogance. Now we come to verse 13 of Daniel 10, and an angel is explaining this to Daniel. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one in 20 days. I had to fight with this devil in the Persian Empire for twenty for three weeks. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, and we know what Michael is, don't we? He's an archangel, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. 
Did the kings of Persia help the church of God? They helped the church of God immensely. Artaxerxes, Ahasuerus, Cyrus, Darius, they helped immensely. Michael the archangel came in and won the day for the church to fulfill the will of God. It all works together if we'll read the whole thing. Then verse 20, Then he then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. There was a devil motivating behind Alexander the Great that was going to raise him up out of the Macedonians to be the ruler of the world for a short period of time. You say, well, I'm scared to think about devils being behind foreign... Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? You're scared? Could they touch Job's grandchild's piggy bank without God giving them permission? No. Could they touch Job's body with even one scab without God giving him permission? And that was the best they have to offer, Satan himself. Don't be scared. Did they, do they have to ask permission of Jesus Christ even to enter pegs? Yes. Don't be scared. Rejoice. Our brother has already defeated them and made an open show of them. But I want you to notice that first Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian empire, there were watchers involved. Then there was the Persian empire and there were watchers and angels involved. Then the Greek empire. And then look at chapter 12. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. You say, that's really, that's exciting to think that the church of God had Michael to stand up for them. Are you excited? I got one better. The Lord Jesus Christ stands up for us. And he's kind of mighty. And they all report to him, including Michael. Do you know what Michael has to say when he gets in an argument with the devil? The Lord, the Lord rebuke thee. Who's he referring to? Our brother. Our brother. In the flesh, glorified in heaven right now. When the Lord Jesus Christ has that kind of authority over the armies of heaven, are you worried about men on earth? No. Not at all. They're involved in government. And they don't like an abuse of authority. Do you know how we can have the angels on our side? And there was an angel on our side yesterday, wasn't there? Five and a half pounds. Right. What do you think I did when I heard that? Just slouched in my chair? <laughs> and what did the doctors say? Remember when they called in the Chaldeans, the astrologers, and we're thankful for them once in a while. But when they called in the Chaldeans and the astrologers, that email that you got last night said that they were guessing three to four pounds. Mm-hmm. What do we say? Three and a half? What's five and a half compared to three and a half? Is anyone in here able to do some decent math? To get two on a base of 3.5? That's just embarrassing is what it is. That's a 65% error. Who do you want on your side? The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. So what do we do when we read that verse? We fear God. If the watchers are always looking at how we treat authority... And they influence and work in our lives and even the lives of nations based on how authority is treated. How are you going to speak about our government and our rulers? How are wives going to speak about their husbands? How are children going to speak about their parents to have angels on our side? Otherwise, they can call for judgment to come because authority isn't being recognized. And if you think I'm stretching things, I'm going to refer you to 1 Corinthians 11 for the second time. That they watch the length of hair on women's heads. because a woman is supposed to have hair that covers her head that shows she's under submission to her husband. It's a symbol on her head of her submission. And Jesus Christ governs these angels. You know, there's a whole sermon that's been preached, Jesus and the angels, because Jesus was seated at the right hand of God, far above all. Far above all. Principalities and powers, thrones, might, and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in the world which is to come. Is there something that God left out? I can't think of it. But do you know what the next words are? For the church. Mm -hmm. For the church. 
if anyone survives this planet and constellations and stars and asteroids that are all out of control, I speak as a fool, and all the international games that are being played in ISIS and suicide bombers and truck drivers out of control, who's, if anybody's going to survive, who will survive? The church. Amen. So where should we want to be? Part of the church. Submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ as our King and our Lord and our Savior. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen.